Approach pain relief from the ground up with Curex. Curex makes highly customizable over-the-counter insoles thanks to their dynamic arch technology, which provides different support for different arch types. They were developed by German scientists for the specific foot movements of various activities delivering the right support and cushion where it's needed the most. Curex makes the largest selection of activity-specific insoles for running, hiking, golfing, biking, soccer, tennis, or solely for walking and everyday wear. That's the Curex difference, and it can make a difference for your patients. For a free sample, email curexinside at curex.us. That's C-U-R-R-E-X inside at curex.us. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today on JOSPT Insights, we have our monthly Journal Club edition, where we focus on research articles as the springboard for interviews with authors, educators, as well as clinical experts. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at True Sports Physical Therapy in Baltimore, Maryland as well. And so today we welcome you to listen to the second part of our discussion with Eric Mira, covering a whole assortment of questions related to ACL care. While our first episode focused on the trajectory of care from surgery through return to sport, in this episode, we delve a little deeper into some less common patient presentations, starting out with our patients recovering from their second or even third reconstruction. Let's start with what we just talked about, having multiple ACL surgeries. So if this is their second or, I mean, third, we're not even going to talk about farther than that. How does your approach change? Yeah. So the, the big thing is going to be uh, when we start getting into return to play, I'm going to be very concerned that they've never, that they've learned alternative strategies uh, for being out there. So my concern with those is that I think a lot of them just don't have as, they don't have as much experience in the weight room. I don't necessarily mean that they're not strong. I just mean that they're, they're not used to pushing themselves close to their, their peak torques. Um, and I want them to have experience with that. Um, and then I want them to have as much experience with their sport as possible. And so I think what happens a lot of times, and this, this can be a factor with female athletes in particular is culturally, they're not allowed quote unquote to, uh, they're not encouraged to roughhouse to, to have a lot of physical contact in their play when they're younger. And so what happens is where a, a young boy grows up being encouraged to do those things by the time they hit high school soccer, for example, they have a lot of experience with colliding with other people around the same size of, as them. And so this is kind of something that their system has a lot of experience with and has a lot of higher quality options where you take somebody who hasn't had any of that. Also, you talk about weight room, how many women are encouraged to get in the weight room versus men who are encouraged to get in the weight room? What is culturally acceptable? And, you know, they get into their high school soccer and it's the first time they've really had this and they're competing against high school seniors who have four years of experience with that, who are going to come at you. It's a lot more complicated than just saying, they have bad mechanics, quote unquote, which I think is a little bit of a cop out. And so now I'm taking somebody who is actually, you know, they've already returned to sport, not just with lack of experience or all these other things, but they've returned to sport probably without a quadricep. And now what have they learned? 
And if they've gotten through a little bit and, 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 and especially if the rehab was really focused on quote function, they've learned hip strategies. Most likely that's how they got functional without that quadricep. Now I have to break all of that. And so unlearning something and learning and, and kind of restoring the previous one is, is tricky. And, and to me, at one point, they had some strategies that were effective that were not that hip strategy. And I just need to show them that they're available again because they weren't available before. And so that's getting that task transfer to happen in, in that situation. And so um, it's not that we're going to rehab them any differently during the uh, during the main phases, but we'll we'll kind of, you know, watch them. And again, I mentioned that uh, in the in the chat before that uh, we're going to test them a month after they've returned to see what their quads are doing. And so what we usually do is we'll test them. We'll test them to clear them to go back to sport. Uh, we'll test them a month out to see if anything's changed. Uh, we'll test them right before the season, but even if they fail everything, we're not going to hold them out because that's not really fair to that athlete. Um, and then it's just things that they need to focus and work on. And then we'll test them again after that season. And if they've passed all of those, we're going to, we're going to let them go, uh, and, and just deem them fine from that point, uh, regardless of if they're primary or, or, or revision of, of that ACL. And so since ACL rehab can take nine, sometimes 12 months, working with insurance companies can be pretty challenging. How do you go about trying to use your visits uh, as effectively as possible? To me, I'm going to save up those visits early. And it's just, we're doing check-ins. I mean, come on, it's not that complicated to work on range of motion. There's not a lot of evidence that doing a bunch of hands-on or any of that type of stuff is going to make a huge difference. Just get the swelling down, get the extension. As we talked about before, Cyclops lesions seem to happen. Uh, we're going to try to do everything we can to avoid them, but I don't know that more rehab is going to be the answer in that situation. And so as long as that stuff is being managed appropriately, just having the patient understand that you're there if they need anything, yeah. but they probably don't need a lot in the early phases. And so we're going to ramp up to usually, I, ideally during the early phases, if I have my perfect world, unlimited visits, I'm going to see them once a week, honestly, in the early phases. Uh, but yeah, using, using those up, you know, it could be once a month would be the lowest that we would do. And then uh, after 12 weeks, I may want to see them twice a week, three times a week, even uh, definitely weekly. And all I'm trying to establish is here we're going into that, as we talked about before, that strength phase. Can I get you to understand the process? And then can I get you to manage the process for the next month? And then I'll cut them loose for a month and let them just kind of, hey, you just got to put your head down and put reps in. And then we're going to test you in a month and see how you're doing. Oh, just like we, uh, I talked about like the very early phase of rehab. I'm going to show you a couple of range of motion activities. You're going to come back in a week or so later and I'm going to check to see, are you progressing? If you're progressing, let's not change anything. Keep going. Uh, if you're not progressing, let's try to figure out why not. And so same situation here and just making sure that they're meeting their, their benchmarks. The thing I say all the time as well is that I, the testing is more important than the intervention that you're doing. To make sure that they're making progress, whether that progress is due to anything specific about your intervention or just time passing, doesn't really matter as long as you're tracking that and not letting them move on to more complicated things before they have the capacities to do it. 
once a month, that's bonkers to me. <laughs> I can't even imagine that. I don't, how many 16 year old girls are actually doing what they're supposed to, boys, are they actually doing what they're supposed to be doing? <laughs> okay. Um, in my personal experience, we've come across with, um, with a lot of patellar grafts. It's a sleepy quad. Does that still fit with your approach of maybe once a week check-ins, um, at that point, or do you change the beginning of rehab based on that? Yeah. So the, the first thing we teach them is once they can get to 90 degrees of knee flexion, we're going to park them in a chair, have them put a shoe on, plant that foot on the ground, put the chair back up against the wall, plant that foot on the ground, and then try to push the chair back. So they're basically doing a quad isometric at 90 degrees. So super safe, quote unquote, because we're, we're down at 90 degrees. And just have them do that push and show them a 45 second hold for pain. You know, we're just, just sit with the discomfort, you know, don't push into, you know, if you want to give a pain score type thing, like a three out of 10, four out of 10, don't go any higher than that. If it starts to drop down to two out of 10 or one out of 10, push harder to keep it up around three to four. This would be if you're treating, you know, a pain type, uh, uh, situation, get them used to that and get them doing that as a regular type thing. Now that they come in a week later and, and again, like I said, you get a crane scale out and you test them on the crane scale. If it's a whole lot better than it was the previous week, who cares if it's just swelling going down? Who cares if they're doing their homework? It's getting better. Uh, and then you check it again and you check it again. And if it's not progressing, then you have to ask yourself, well, is this a normal lack of progression or is this a problematic lack of progression? We talked about before, sometimes they just kind of stall out. So if they raced up to 75% of their uninvolved side within four weeks and then they stop progressing, I, I don't know that more homework is going to be the answer to that problem. This may just be that now it needs to sit for a little bit. You know, I think at least, and what I always tell the patient is the bare minimum you have to do is you have to keep requesting that that muscle engages, keep requesting it. Don't let it become complacent with not acting. You know, you're, you're trying to get something to adapt. So you're telling it, this is the load that you need. That is going to be something you're going to need to learn how to deal with. And you're not going to be able to get around it. It's going to keep coming, figure it out. Again, another, another patient and also confident approach from a physical therapist. You have to be confident enough in what you're doing to know this is right. Keep going. I don't know why it's not responding, but just keep doing it. Yeah. And again, this is where, you know, I had mentioned before, like doing a primary assessment, a secondary assessment, just trying to figure out, is, is there something going wrong in here that, you know, it, honestly, from a physical therapy perspective, I mean, what more are you going to throw at the thing? You know, you can give a, a home unit for NMES, uh, you can try a bunch of hands-on interventions, but really you just kind of trying stuff. I mean, I always joke about that. They, they could, they could say, well, I'm not making any progress. I'm going to go see somebody else. And they go see somebody else. And the person, I don't know, like does some ultrasound or something. And all of a sudden they're like, Whoa, look how great it is. Yeah. That was the stall finally let go. And there they went. And so that person gets the credit for it. And this is where keeping those open communications with the surgeon is also helpful as well. Where you're like, you know, they're kind of stuck here, but you know, I don't think this is unusual. And a lot of times the surgeons will go back and will come back and say, no, this is, I'm not worried about anything. It, it just needs time. Just, just keep giving it time. Uh, you know, if you're concerned with, you know, starting to feel like there's some laxity going on there or, or there's like a, a, 
mechanical sign of some sort that, you know, every time they go to kick, there's a clunk or a catch, or it looks like there's a physical block at the end of extension. You're concerned about a cyclops or something like that. Having that open communication with a surgeon is really helpful there so that the, the two, you can back each other up through the process as well, that you're sending the same message. And this can be difficult, you know, because some surgeons are going to send different messages. And this is where having a, a good relationship with your surgeon is really, really helpful from that perspective. I think sometimes, occasionally, perhaps, physical therapists have been accused of underdosing their patients from time to time. <laughs> no. <laughs> How do you like to make sure that you're continuing to hit a, a therapeutic dosage for strengthening? You know, do you use a percentage of one rep max? Do you use reps in reserve? What do you like to do to make sure that you're continuing to push the ball forward? So th there's kind of two force output things that I'm working on. One would be, you know, leg extension specific. I don't know that there's a specific dosing strategy for that other than just keep slapping. It's like the TV that's all fuzzy and which again, I think is dating me. I don't know if that they do that anymore, but you just keep whacking it and eventually it'll kind of figure it out. But you just keep requesting saying, Hey, I need you. I need you to do this. This is not going to go away. This, this load profile is not going to go away. You're going to have to learn to reckon with this. Now, again, if they're up over 50%, you know, there could be squatting and we'll start loading them up on like trap bar, deadlifts, back squats, front squats. And so when we get into that, now we're talking about conditioning in a whole system here. Sorry, a whole organism. I keep going back to using that term. And so at, at this point, what we'll do is we'll just use a very basic RPE, uh, you know, rate of perceived exertion where – I'll have them like, let's say it's a trap bar. I'll say, go ahead and step into that trap bar. And, you know, with a high level athlete, they've done this before. And I'll ask them a number. What, what number do you usually work with? Whatever number that is, I'll knock some weight off of that, set it up and say, all right, go ahead and just pick it up one time. They pick it up one time, set it down. And I say, do you think you can get 10 reps with that? They say, yes. Uh, do you think you get a lot more than 10 reps? Yeah, it feels pretty light. All right, well, let's go a little heavier. And then they estimate what 10 reps weight is going to feel like. And then I'll say, all right, lift it 10 times. If they lift it 10 times, I'm going to put more weight on it and then ask them to lift 10 times again. And I keep putting more weight on it until they can't get to 10. And then that will give me a reference point of max exertion. So when you use an RPE or rate of perceived exertion, any type of scale has to be anchored to something. So they have to know what 10 out of 10 feels like. And so, you know, keep going, keep going and you push them, get that 10th rep in and a lot of times they'll say, ah, uh, I, I don't think I could do 11. Well, too bad. Here's more weight. Do another 10. And, and because a lot of times, yeah, they hit 10 again. Uh, and that's why it's important to kind of really get that first one heavy enough, that first set heavy enough. So you're not there all day doing these, but give them that, that experience of 10 out of 10. And then I can say, all right, I want you to give me a seven out of 10 exertion. And then they know what that means. And there's some evidence that that's a pretty good, very simple reference point. And so we'll use that for most of our like multi-joint major lifts. Uh, and I'm, I go with the classics, you know, our squats or deadlifts. We'll do um, some, some power things, some of the Olympic lifts, that kind of stuff as well with these, with these athletes. But again, just using that simple RPE, giving them a, a basic anchor, you know, you could use DAPRI, uh, which is uh, a fairly popular one. You mentioned reps and reserve. All of those are, are, are fine. It, it's kind of gets into, this is for me, I am a certified strength and conditioning specialist, but I am number one, a physical therapist. And so I'm not 
going to act like a strength coach to them. Uh, I'm going to be good enough to get those principles running with my rehab. But if they need true strength and conditioning, and again, if I'm working with a high-level college athlete, I'm going to call their strength coach and say, here's where we're at. Do your thing and let them you know, demonstrate their professional knowledge. I think that's also very important. You talking before about making sure that they're able to load that and making sure that their like knee strategy is appropriate because I feel like sometimes if loaded too early, then that's where you really see that stuff come out. Or that also limits the amount that they can actually load because they're afraid to do that. Okay, I want to ask you one more like troubleshooting because I think this is very common and and can change things. I want to hear your take on if someone also has a concurrent meniscus, let's go repair. And in what phases does that change things for you? Yeah, so these are meniscus repairs as a whole is a is a kind of a tricky topic. There's some systematic reviews uh, that have been completed around you know, best rehab, so to speak, around a meniscus repair. And the the conclusion for most of them is pretty much, eh, it doesn't really matter what you do. They're going to take it or not. Um, whether you do a lot of restricted weight bearing, restricted range of motion, uh, delayed return, they just kind of either, either they heal or they don't. And so I've worked with some surgeons who are like, don't even tell the physical therapist you had a meniscus repair because I don't want them getting all worried and, and changing the rehab. And then I have others who are like, do not push them into extension. Do not push them past 90 degrees of flexion for six weeks. They're going to be touchdown weight bearing for six weeks. That's more of what I'm seeing. Right. And so that, that makes it really difficult. Now you could say, well, I've got research that says I can do whatever I want. Okay. And when that thing doesn't take, guess who's going to get blamed for it? Now you and I both know it wasn't going to take anyway. If it doesn't, it's just kind of the nature of it. But the other thing I like to say is remind physical therapists of, well, that surgeon was the one that was in there and saw the specifics of this specific meniscus injury. So I don't know that would be that cavalier. And I, I, I think it is justifiable to blame you for going way off what that surgeon had recommended. Recommended. And so, yeah, so my, my response to that usually is, well, check with your surgeon to see whatever weird precautions they've set on the process and then away you go. Now, if I am trying to protect a meniscus tear, and again, keeping in mind that not all meniscus tears are equal, you know, depending on the angle of the tear, you know, the, the location, all of these things. I'm usually going to, uh, I'm not going to be too worried about our leg extension type activities. They're not really putting much compressive load onto that, that injury. So I can work on a lot of quad. Like I said before, I'm not a huge do a ton of squats early type person with this, uh, and trying to really push a lot of load onto it. Um, the research really shows that if you just go by what they can tolerate, uh, and just use that as your guide. That's probably going to be your best approach. And so we, we definitely do that. Most surgeons are perfectly happy with repair, kind of like I mentioned with the ACLs. Once there's three months out and there's 12 weeks out, you're kind of, like I said, in open water, just go by, by tolerance. Uh, so even those ones that are really restricted, the six weeks of, uh, in a brace, uh, using uh, crutches for six weeks, touchdown weight bearing, restricted range of motion. Usually by 12 weeks, you're free to do whatever you want. My concern is with the restricted range of motion that this person has started to get some, you know, they may need to get a manipulation or something because they've really kind of frozen up on you. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you so much. And I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to you guys. This has been This has been great. Thank you for listening to the second part of our discussion with Dr. Eric Mira. And as always, thank you for listening to JOSPT Insights. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. 
for more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to GOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Mm